Hey friends, welcome back to It Takes a Village. My name is Mark Gent. We hope you had a great Thanksgiving with your family, friends, neighbors, whoever it is that's in your community that you spent some time with last week. And hopefully you are refreshed and ready for a fun month of December as the end of 2022 is now within sight. It seems that each time we release a new podcast, I find myself at this part of the intro saying something along the lines of, I'm excited about today's guest. And whereas that may sound repetitive, as I was preparing to record today's, I thought, really, but genuinely, I am, uh, each and every time. Uh, We've just been so blessed with uh, great people who have come on and allowed us to interview them and hear about their story. And today's guest is no different, as I sat down recently with my friend Steve Flatt, who many of you are going to recognize his name and his voice, and you're going to know his story as he's been a fixture in our fellowship and our tribe for decades as a preacher and teacher in education, and now he's making a difference as an executive in healthcare at NHC. A few weeks ago, Taryn Foster and Scott Saunders from our staff, we made the trek to Murfreesboro to visit him at his office. And some of you may be wondering, uh, what's his connection to Healing Hands? And early on in our conversation, you're going to hear that his vision and his heart for ministry in Eastern Europe over three decades ago led to him taking multiple trips to love, encourage, and serve those people who were impacted by the Cold War as it came to an end in 1991. For those of us here at Healing Hands, those trips Steve Flatt made were really the story before the story of HHI. And without what he did then, who knows if we would be where we are now. Maybe so, and maybe not. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Steve Flatt. All right, we want to welcome Steve Flatt to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you, Mark. We are grateful that uh, you took time out, uh, letting us come to visit you here at NHC headquarters in Murfreesboro. Uh, You know, you've always been somebody who others are drawn to and all that you've done. And being on our podcast is no different, which is why we wanted to spotlight you. And we just learned this is your first podcast to be on. Very first. Very Out of all the videos you've done and speaking engagements and preaching all over the world, this is your first podcast. I'm, I'm behind the times on podcast, Mark, but well, you're, you're gonna catching go, me up. I appreciate it. You're so. going to go viral now. Uh, no question. <laughs> hey, so we've got a lot to dive into in the next few minutes, but... Uh, Just for our audience, uh, for the eight people listening who haven't heard of you, um, I'm going to attempt to give a brief bio of uh, Steve Flatt. You're a native Nashvillian. Uh, There's not many of those left here in Middle Tennessee, but you've married to Patsy. You have three adult children, uh, grandchildren. Three grandchildren and just learned we got a fourth on the way. Oh, congratulations. And what do they call you? Chief. Is that your name? Chief. I've... picked that out a decade ago (laughs) and i've trained them well i am chief i have heard that grandparents pick out their own nicknames but i have never heard a granddad called chief that's why i chose it that unique (laughs) that fits you so well (laughs) chief i may refer to you to chief the rest of the podcast i'm not your grandchild but uh hey you're well known within our tribe for several different reasons um uh, you you went to david lipscomb college you played a little basketball 
Shot a few hoops, right? Yes, when peach baskets were nailed to the wall. <laughs> it's been a while. And uh, then you worked on campus for several years when Willard Collins was president. I'm sure you have good memories and stories of uh, Mr. Willard. Uh, Brother Collins was a tremendous man. Uh, it's interesting. He didn't hire me to work at Lipscomb. I was hired by Athens Clay Pullius in the summer of 1977, which is when I graduated. But President Pullius left... Uh, rather abruptly, and on September 1st, 1977, Willard Collins started as president the same day I became the assistant to the vice president in training to be the director of admissions. So we started in our new roles on the same day. Oh, how fantastic. Brother Collins is from one of the greatest small towns in America, with that being Lewisburg, Tennessee. Um, which just so happens to be where I'm from as well. But, just, uh, just so happens. Just so happens. Just so happens. Well, you were there for several years, and you went to the Madison Church of Christ to be the pulpit minister in 86, and you did that for over a decade while helping lead one of the largest churches of Christ in America. And what I've always like been um, really intrigued by is if you didn't have enough to do in leading Mal- Madison, you were also the president of Ezo Harding Christian School for several years, uh, K-12 private school here in town and uh wow to do both of those at one time that's that's impressive well there's kind of a long story behind it that you probably don't have time for on this podcast uh i'd had two jobs because it wasn't unusual for any body in administration staff or faculty at lipscomb to also be in some kind of part-time ministerial role and i had done that during my first nine years at lipscomb but when president hazlip was selected I, i decided i really wanted to go to one job and Ezel Harding, out of the blue, offered me the presidency. I had two children that were about to enter elementary school and just thought that would be a good fit. It was a thriving school at the time. We had 1,100 students at Ezel. So I actually left Madison, where I was the associate part-time minister, and left Lipscomb to become president. But six months later, Madison had a pulpit change, and they came back and asked me to fill that role. But I just didn't feel good about leaving Ezel after six months and so we made an arrangement where for five years I actually did both jobs. That wow. was a, a busy, busy time. Wow, that's great. And then 1997, uh, you came back to your alma mater to be the 16th president of uh, David Lipscomb University. Uh, this was during my college year, so I'll call you my president. Um, that was at the <laughs> end of my freshman year. Then in 2005, you left higher education to come to, here to NHC, and you joined the leadership team as senior vice president. And then in 2017, you were named CEO and Inside Director, so quite a career. Um, you've also served just on several boards nonprofit or, of nonprofit organizations throughout Middle Tennessee, and uh, you've won more awards and honors and received more plaques than will fit on this wall behind you. So um, how's that for a bio? I, did, I didn't even look at your LinkedIn profile. That was all just off the top of my head. You're kidding. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, I, 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 knew, I knew your bio. I knew your, your history yeah. and your background. Uh, well so, done. Well done, Mr. <laughs> Jim. No, that, that's, that's pretty comprehensive. That's more than anybody listening to this wanted to know. But <laughs> you've covered it. So uh, we've known each other about 25 years. Like I said, we met in 1997. So we've we got to find a way here soon to celebrate our silver anniversary uh, between us. We'll, we'll come up with an adventure so that we can um there's a crystal right down the street if we want to meet there and share a slider it'd be 
<laughs> That'd be perfect. <laughs> we'll, we'll upgrade to an extra large. There you go. Um, so we have a multitude of topics we want to cover today about your career, what you're doing now. But where we want to start, uh, Steve, is your connection to Healing Hands. So most people listening have heard us talk about it on other podcasts. The Healing Hands was founded in the fall of 1991. And it was birthed out of a Randy Steger marketing class as he challenged his students to respond to a humanitarian crisis in Eastern Europe. But what a lot of people don't know is the crisis that he was responding to at the time was because of trips you had taken and the connections you had made earlier that year. And uh, last year we celebrated our 30th anniversary at HHI, so we had lots of stories being told about the early years. But one reason we wanted to come and have this conversation with you today is uh, you hold the keys to the story before the story. (laughs) And that is uh, just how God worked in that and through that over time. So just tell our listeners what was happening in Eastern Europe in 1991 and really just what prompted you to respond to the crisis. Well, I think most of America was touched by what was happening in Eastern Europe and particularly to the orphans in Romania. I was the pulpit minister at Madison Church of Christ for 11 and a half years, always been a big-hearted, benevolent congregation. It's still known for that to this day. And, you know, a little history mark that maybe uh, a lot of the listeners have forgotten, but when the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet bloc began to crumble, uh, Romania was under Soviet control, and they had an emperor named Nikolai Ceausescu and his wife Elena, who had built this the most unbelievable palace I've ever seen. And I've been to Versailles, so I've seen some pretty nice ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they did, they wanted to create literally a, a hand labor empire. They forced every woman to bear at least five children. Wow. Contraception was prohibited, and people were having babies that they couldn't care for. Um, Romania is about the size of Wyoming. At the time, it had about 27 million people. But what really prompted it, they they were overturned and executed on Christmas Day, 1989. Oh, my. Uh, With that, there was really just chaos. And 2020, the news special went in, and in mid-1990, they did what a lot of your listeners, if they're old enough, will still remember today. It was an expose on Romanian orphans. Uh, They were naked and in cages. uh, I mean, dozens of them in just small confined spaces. They were uh, emaciated, they were, were starving. It, it was just, it just broke everyone's heart. And we decided we were gonna try uh, to, to do something to help with that. Now, I, I will say that even, even before that 2020 came out, um, with the, the Soviet bloc coming down, there were gonna be more freedoms and Eastern European missions uh, mm-hmm. approached Madison about, hey, help us get Bibles into Bulgaria and Romania and the old Czechoslovakia, some places where they were prohibited. So what we decided, particularly after that, that episode of 2020 aired, is that we would plan a trip and we would work it in coordination with um, Eastern European missions, and we would take Bibles in Romanian, and we would we would take off in a truck, a big old truck, and we would go from, uh, oh gosh, we were from Vienna and go through, went to Budapest and over across into to Romania. And we would also take a truckload of food. 
And we did that in the spring, I guess, of 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's so many things I could tell you about that trip. Uh, first of all, we were supposed to work with uh, uh, Rubel Shelley was supposed to accompany us from okay. the Woodmont Hills Church. There was also going to be um, a fellow who'd been a longtime missionary in Poland who was a native there and had actually been into Romania a few times. When we get there, that group had already left. So it was me and Larry Souter, the cameraman, for uh, taping Amazing Grace. And by the way, we did take our camera. We we taped some Amazing Grace Bible class episodes. Didn't mention that. That was a, a weekly program that Madison Church of Christ put on for years. And those can be found on YouTube today. Uh, some of them can. Yeah. And, uh, and we went with a guy named uh, Murray Chichetka. And I'll never forget getting in that truck and we're taking off driving toward Romania. Just the three of us in this truck full of food and Bibles. And I said, well, now, Murray, how many times have you been into Romania? And he's a very soft-spoken gentleman. He said, well, this will be my first time. <laughs> and I'm going, we're all going to die. <laughs> and it really was an eye-opener for me. I'd traveled abroad, you know, different places, but uh, going into the, into what were formerly communist countries and that now were frankly lawless countries. You had to bribe every border guard with either cash or bananas. Bananas were a big thing to bribe border mm. guards with. And we got into Bucharest, the capital city, and literally there was a riot going on. Mm. Um, there were hunger strikes going on, there were violence, and shots fired, and you know here we are with a truckload of food. That's an ominous kind of situation to be in. But I'll never forget, we stopped at an orphanage in a little town called Sibiu, which is in Transylvania, mm-hmm. literally in Transylvania, beautiful country, by the beautiful part of the country, by the way. And there were 74 orphanages in an old, I would have called it an old dilapidated antebellum house, mm. about four large rooms, and they were just in bunk beds. And their dinner that night was cream of wheat. Wow. And that was it. And we brought them a, a lot of food, and uh, we, we, we dropped food to other orphanages, and then we passed out Bibles. That's another whole story. The people just went crazy over that. Uh, literally were pressing up against the back of the truck to where some people were almost injured from the, just the, the, the mass pressing them to get a, a copy of the Word of God. So it, it was a very eye-opening trip. We came back, and after that, Chris Jingles got involved for a follow-up trip in February of, I think it was February of 92. It was very cold. And we took a, a convoy of trucks, and okay. we did several Amazing Grace classes, and we never asked for any money on the Amazing Grace Bible class. That okay. was just out of principle. We sponsored the program. We never asked for money, but we did tell viewers they could have an opportunity to participate if they wanted to help these folks with food. And, and literally, we got a couple of hundred thousand dollars toward wow. that, which we used every dime of it for uh, providing that aid in, in Romania and into Bulgaria. And that's what I was going to ask you. Um, some of our listeners will be familiar and remember the Amazing Grace Bible class that was broadcast on television. And that ended up being a big part of the vision to get the message out. Um, tell our listeners who are not familiar with that, the reach of the Amazing Grace Bible class and just how, how that did just organically spread um, it as far as benefiting these efforts. But, I mean, this was... Uh, a video and a television series that you'd been doing for years and you use that as a platform um, to help the people over in Eastern Europe. 
Yeah, it, it, the Amazing Grace Bible class was actually started by Dr. Ira North, who uh, was the legendary uh, preacher at Madison, was there for 32 years in the pulpit before his untimely death. He began that in 1971. Okay. Uh, it followed, this is a little bit of trivia, he started the first religious program in Nashville. It was called Know Your Bible, where he was a moderator. It was old black and white and had different guests on there, and they would answer Bible questions. But that morphed into the Amazing Grace Bible class. And it was, at the time, I was doing it, the longest continuously running religious broadcast in America wow. under that same name. And um, what, what we did is we syndicated that. We sponsored the Madison Church. It's airing in, in Nashville at the time on WKRN Channel 2 and 7.30 in the mornings on Sunday morning. But different groups of churches around the country would pay for the airtime uh, in their locale. And okay. we were on in about 50 markets okay. at that time. Uh, obviously, as television got more popular, that became more expensive, and sometimes we lost some of the, the larger markets. But uh, a lot of people saw the Amazing Grace class week after week. Tell us how that then got connected to Randy Steger and the Lipscomb class months later. I mean, you this is the story before the story and how Madison and you got connected, but then that trickled down to that marketing class in the fall of 91, which eventually became Healing Hands. Well, and, you know, I mentioned we went in the spring of 91 and that Randy was initiating that effort. And I think some of that was prompted by the same stimulus we had, the 2020 expose and, and some other reports that came out after that. And honestly, Mark, I'm, I'm trying to remember how I, I heard of that. And then Chris Jingles became involved. And I know Chris is still with HHI today, one of the, one of the finest men I've ever known in my life. And uh, Chris accompanied me on that 92 trip. And, and it was really, we got a lot of that food through Healing Hands, too. So, through well, through Randy's effort at the time. And I, honestly, Randy would have to tell you, you know, how Healing Hands grew from there. But I do know, I do know that, yes, uh, the genesis of Healing Hands and that effort to take uh, food and, and, and supplies to Eastern Europe uh, was the genesis of the great organization that continues today as Healing Hands International. Well, we can't thank you enough. And uh, people around the world are still impacted by um, you following, uh, being faithful to that calling and the seeds that you planted then but let's talk about that how, how do you see God working through these simple steps of faithfulness that I mean really none of us could plan or imagine I mean when you went over there that first time and you were responding to the crisis immediately that was in front of you and you had no idea of knowing we'd be sitting here in 2022 recording a podcast talking about your trip <laughs> to Eastern Europe but talk about just God's uh, how he works through those simple steps of faithfulness that we can never imagine ourselves. Well, that's that's just the way God does. Um, that's through all the all, true all the way through Scripture, and and if we have our eyes open, we can see it all the time uh, in our day to day lives. Especially if you can look back, mm -hmm. just like we're describing with this story of what happened 30 years ago in Eastern Europe, and some people of faith who wanted to to let God go to work in them and through them. And, and now so much has happened. But, you know, you go back when, when David was sold into slavery, or David, excuse me, Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers in Egypt. Who knew he would end up really being the one who saved that whole country and part of the world through the famine? I mean, but he was, he was faithful. And, 
So if you if you have your eyes open and look for opportunities, I mean, God will always do incredible things with just the smallest of things. Uh, uh, the faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed. If it's if it's really planted and watered, it's amazing what it produces. Yeah, well, uh, it's been over three decades now since you took that trip. And um, you have so many memories from it. But just looking back, what would you say impacted you, Steve Flatt, the most? Well, as I said, I'd traveled to different places, but I had never seen it was just just so many things that these were a handsome people they were very articulate you know we're talking about one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth people working in fields with hoes there were no tractors there weren't even any plows pulled by mules or horses they were they were hand working these huge huge fields uh 25 percent of the population could speak english now think about that wow I mean, they had virtually no formal education, but they had learned how to speak English. Yeah. And I thought about how in America, most of us can't speak any other language. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. scares me to even think about trying. The other thing, though, that I I did see is that I've taken for granted so many things, one of the least of which is just family nurturing. Because I was brought up in a family that loved me and that, I mean, I knew my mom and dad would have died for me. Mm. Over there, because of what they had been exposed to under that totalitarian regime, they had lost affection for their children. That's how they they had to give their children away because they couldn't care for them. That's how they ended up in those orphanages. Mm -hmm. Those were not biological orphans. Mm -hmm. They were abandoned children. Mm. I was at a rope factory. And when I say a rope factory while I was there, these women were there literally twisting twine, making rope. No, no automation to it. This handmade rope. And a woman tried to give me her baby when she realized I was American. She oh, asked wow. me to take the baby to America. And, you know, that just broke my heart. Um, we went to Bulgaria to an orphanage, and I'll never get brought in food. And a, and a little boy came up, and he had made this little handmade wheelbarrow out of, you know, shop class, tiny. And he gave me that. And... The gratitude of the people, but but just the, well, it, it just touched me in ways that I'll never forget uh, and broke my heart when I saw mothers wanting to give away their child. Mm. Mm. Wow. Well, um, that is uh, just just your recollection of the, of the story before the story and uh, that to think through uh, where Healing Hands has come from and where we are now, that uh, your impact in what you did continues to reverberate literally around the world. Uh, peoples whose, I just wanna brag on you for a minute. I mean, these are people that uh, we've been serving for years through agriculture and clean water wells and women's ministry and Magi. People whose names you'll never hear and whose faces you'll never see. And uh, just to think back that it was through your acts of faithfulness of saying yes and just going. So on behalf of Healing Hands and people who have uh, been partners and friends and on the receiving end of Healing Hands all these years, I say thank you. Well, you're, you're very kind. I don't deserve that. Um, it just so happened that when a need arose, you had a Randy Steger and a Chris Jingles, and where I was at the time, we had the opportunity to do something. Yeah. But really, what's happened with Healing Hands, that's due to the vision and the heart and the faith of the Randy Stegers mm-hmm. and the Chris Jingles. 
because they've gone beyond yeah. that humble beginning after that. Now, don't misunderstand, I'm, Patsy and I, my wife and I, we're annual supporters of Healing Hands. Mm-hmm. We, we, we love Healing Hands International. It is, uh, it's one of the best organizations I know about anywhere. So, so we're, we're very pro Healing Hands. But I uh, certainly had no idea, nor can I take any credit for all the wonderful <laughs> things that have happened worldwide with HHI. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know and wouldn't have dreamed, but yeah. I'm the one who's very grateful for what all the people uh, involved in it have done. We wanted to be able to hear those stories, so we have them uh, documented for our listeners to give them uh, pull back the curtain so they can hear it. But let's transition a little bit. I want to talk about the other parts of your career a minute. You've had a fascinating career, and each stop along the way, you've held leadership positions that I touched on a minute ago when I gave your bio. You're probably the only person on the planet. Just I, I want to I want to think about this. You're probably the only person on the planet who's been a pulpit minister of a large church. Um, a K-12 private school president uh, who went back to their alma mater and became a university president and then became a CEO of a large national healthcare company. And uh, I was talking to Scott Saunders on the way here, one of your college roommates, uh, classmates, about how you are just one of the most talented and gifted people uh, that most people have ever met. And um, yeah, yeah, just thinking about each stop along the way uh, where God placed you for that season, for that time, and just the people who you've impacted. But what did 22-year-old Steve Flat think that he was going to be doing? Well, first of all, you're kind with that uh, representation of my career. My, my wife just tells me I couldn't keep a job. That's why I just <laughs> kept moving to the next spot. But um, I, I think, you know, going through college and when I graduated and you're 22 years old, uh, you really don't know. Um, uh, yeah, well, let's go back to my college a couple of years earlier. I mean, I majored in math for one reason. I was good at it. Uh, I was adept at math. And I did enjoy communicating and working with people. And I thought, well, I'll be a teacher. Uh, I thought I would be a high school basketball teacher and coach. And I actually had that job lined up at my high school alma mater, McGavick mm. High School in Donaldson. Oh, wow. Teacher was retiring. My, my old basketball coach said, I want you to come. You'd be assistant with my staff. I thought, that's great. Sounds good. When I was approached that spring before graduation by Lipscomb saying, we'd like for you to come and stay here. And, you know, we'd like for you to train in admissions. Well, I loved Lipscomb. So that that was a very attractive thing to me. And they graciously offered to pay for my graduate education at Peabody. And I was able to get a master's and a doctorate over the next two and a half years while I was working um, in exchange for me working five years after I received the degrees, uh-huh. which is fine. It was a very generous offer and uh-huh. a commitment I was willing to make. Uh, so I, I, I had no idea I'd be working at Lipscomb four months before I took that first job. Mm-hmm. Had no idea. And I had no idea that I would move into some different administrative roles because of needs at the time. So, you know, one of the things I, I try to tell young people is don't try to chart out your career when you're 22 years old. Don't, mm-hmm. because, you know, God will, he'll interject things, you know. Mm-hmm. Moses didn't think he'd be doing what he was going to do until the burning bush, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it just, uh, and that doesn't mean every opportunity that comes up is from God, obviously, but uh God, I do think God does open doors for you and also prepares you for the doors that are going to be open and then challenges you when you take on that next yeah. chapter. Yeah. Uh, but but it's all been fun. I, I, I'll tell you this, uh, Mark, I've, I've been blessed. I'm, 
I've enjoyed every job I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I, I really have. I did. I did not leave any job out of dissatisfaction or frustration. I mean, every job has its good days and bads, but none of that. It was more because I really felt like God was opening an opportunity for me to do something different and that he was creating an itch in my heart that I needed to scratch. Yeah. Do you think you have one more stop in you as a math teacher? In case no, there's anybody no. listening today who's in education and may have a high school uh, math job opening and needs a basketball coach. No, no, my, my, my next stop will be a rocking chair somewhere. <laughs> Well, let's go back to Madison. Uh, we touched on that, but uh, you left Lipscomb. Um, you were in your early 30s, and just how and why did you transition then into church ministry at that point in your early 30s after having been in higher education? Well, that that's a great question and one that I did a lot of soul searching on because my, my graduate degrees were in higher education administration. That's what I trained to do, and certainly when I went to Ezel Harding after leaving Lipscomb the first time when I would just turn 30. Uh, I could put that experience and training to good use being the president of a, of a thriving Christian K through 12. Um, but when Jim Mankin left Madison as the pulpit minister and the elders came back to me, um, they said, we've been praying about this and we've received over 200 letters from folks in the congregation that you need to be the person to fill this pulpit. 200. And, and said, we we feel like that that's where God wants you to be. I said, well, now you're playing the God card on me now. It's kind of, <laughs> um, and I said, I, I, I can't, I'd signed a five-year contract with Ezel Harding, which that may be a lesson, you know, don't, don't, don't question God, you know, leave it open for him. But, but having said that, I would have, I wouldn't have gone there for six months and then left. That would have, would have been left them in a lurch. Um, but, You know, I think about the prophet Amos. I think it was Amos who said, I'm neither a prophet nor a son of a prophet. Uh, But he ended up being a prophet. Uh, I I never looked at myself as a preacher. I didn't major in Bible. I took Bible every day while I was an undergraduate at Lipscomb. I did my minor related work at Peabody at the Vanderbilt Divinity School in religious education. So I had uh, ample training and I love the Word of God. But I did not see me... um, being a pulpit minister full time. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that that's what God wanted me to do right then. Uh, and I feel like at that time, the Madison Church Christ was the largest church Christ in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had 50, we had just under 5,000 members. When we left, we had 5,500. So at that time, it was a beacon to a lot of people and a lot of churches. Um, and and I, 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 I'm not in any way insinuating that I would have been the only person who could have felt God would have worked out plan B. Uh, but I felt like I was being called. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was being called to do that. I didn't know for how long. And then when the Lipscomb opportunity came along, I felt like I was called to that. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, I enjoyed every job I ever yeah. had. Uh, yeah. but I didn't envision any of them when I was 22. Yeah, when you were old. 22. What's uh, one of your fondest memories from your time at Madison? Oh my goodness. First of all, I think most wonderful people that I've ever been around, hardworking, they loved each other. Ira North, whom I mentioned a moment ago, he had always, he was such a jovial, spirit-filled man, and he would always talk about every Sunday having the unity of spirit and the bond of peace because he knew it's hard to keep together a large congregation like that. And and he did a masterful job of instilling a, a culture in that church 
that love the Lord, that obeyed the two great commands. Love the Lord thy God with all the heart, strength, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And they, no group of people did that more than us. In fact, I used to kind of kid some of my friends that were at more affluent churches in better parts of town. I said, well, the problem you got at your church, you got a lot of chiefs and not many Indians. <laughs> I said, well, Madison, we got a lot of Indians and not many chiefs. People are just eager to roll up their sleeves and do whatever it takes. And and we just had, we put on some things called like Summer Spectacular, which was a vacation Bible school on mega steroids. And we crafted an entire arc around our family life center one, one summer. And we did... Mo, or excuse me, Noah and the ark. We had plays going on. We had the zoo bring over all its animals. We had camels and an elephant. We had 9,000 people come that last night. 9,000 oh people. Uh, it was just unbelievable. So there were just so many good memories, good friends, and, and just dear people. I, my kids grew up there, mm. which will always mean a lot to me. And uh, I reflect a lot on a lot of those folks who passed on who Used to babysit my children, and you know when we go out and do things in ministry. And anyway, yeah. I, I I could go on. on. You're, you're going to have to edit this uh, this podcast because. <laughs> well, you went back to Lipscomb in 1997 to be president. You followed in the footsteps of Harold Hazelove, and I still remember the front page of the Tennessean having a picture of you, and I think in front of uh, Beeman Library. Uh, announcing your your presidency as having uh, come home back to the alma mater. Uh, at that point, you were you were only in your early forties, and you became a university president. What intrigued you to make that move at that time, after having been in church ministry for over a decade? Well, I, I, you know, I, that's a great question. I love church ministry. I, I will say this: church ministry can can be very draining. Um, one thing that in my job at Madison, even though we had a large staff, we had 43 people on staff. Uh, when you're in what, what do we call ministry, you know, the most proactive thing you do is craft a sermon and deliver it, which I enjoyed doing. But so much of the other is reactive. You're, you're dealing with people's problems, which is a wonderful thing. But as I continued at Madison, you know, I began to realize that about 20 to 25% of what I do is proactive and about 70 to 75% is, or 75 to 80% is reactive. And I realized it was kind of a, an aha about myself. I'm a proactive person. And when I went into the presidency at Lipscomb, you still have to react to things, but that proportion flipped. About 75% of what you do is proactive and about 25% is reactive. You know, God makes each of us differently, and so you've got to recognize how he made you and the strengths that he's given you and the frustration points that are innate to you. And, again, I loved it at Madison, loved it, but at the same time when this opportunity opened up and knowing how much I loved Lipscomb, I was my, my alma mater, I'd worked nine years there with wonderful people, um, I just believe it's where God was calling me to go. It also, by the way, was what I was actually trained to do. So when you arrived, it was the end of my freshman year, like I mentioned earlier. And I just remember being in awe of your stature, not only because you're six, seven, but uh, just your charisma, your ability to teach and preach uh, on the level of anyone who was listening at whatever stage they were in their faith journey, you could reach them. And I remember you often you'd come to uh, Bison Square on Tuesday night devos and talk to students. Uh, you'd come speak in chapel. Um, you'd personally go on the road and do recruiting trips to prospective students and their parents. And 
you know, I think back to how you grew the university, both physically and academically over your time as president. But as you look back, uh, what did you enjoy most about that period of your professional career? And what are you most proud of from your time at Lipscomb? Well, what I enjoyed most was the interaction with students, the, the very thing you're talking about. Uh, I enjoyed playing on your intramural team, <laughs> the Blue Haggards. I enjoyed, you know, going to the Devos. I enjoyed just, you know, sitting out with the students in the student center. I mean, that interaction uh, was just so positive. And uh, I do miss that. I miss that even to this day. But that was wonderful. What I'm, I'm, it's hard to say what I'm proudest about. I think that when you're the president of a university, it's kind of like being the mayor of a little city. Mm. I mean, yes, education is primary. And when it's Christian education, you certainly want that spiritual emphasis and, and Christian training. But you got to worry about where people are going to eat and where they're going to sleep and how much security there's going to be and, you know, the infrastructure and, you know, heating and lighting. And, I mean, just everything, all of the different extracurricular activities. So what I'm, I guess I'm proudest of, and this is kind of a generic answer, Mark, but I think all the, hopefully, all the facets of the university stepped up. You know, I, I mean, I, and I think Randy Lowry's done the same in his thing. I think Harold did it. I think Willard did it before him. And I, and I know Candace is going to do it now. I think it's the job of, it's kind of like the old thing about going to the picnic or going to camp. Leave it better than you found. Hmm. And uh, I, 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 I'm not going to say we didn't have our, our efforts that failed. Every president does. Uh, you just don't ever talk about those. You know, you just kind of let those be lost for posterity. But there were so many good things that happened in curriculum growth, spiritual growth, um, uh, with extracurricular activities. Uh, I, I, I just think the university hopefully was better when I left than it was when I came. Yeah, well, uh, I was fortunate. You and I got to know each other um, when I was a student, and you were more than just my university president. Uh, you became a mentor and a friend, and uh, I've thanked you before, but I want to thank you for that because the impact you had on my life during those formative college years has been immeasurable, and then when I came back to work at Lipscomb, you were still president, and you're the reason uh, Beth and I met on that trip to Australia I remember. in the summer of 2000. You've never actually let me forget that. <laughs> so in 2005, you come to NHC, right. National Healthcare Corporation, and um, just why then? Why, why healthcare, and why then were you drawn to a to a new industry and a new sector uh, to get into healthcare? Well, uh, it's kind of a long story. After uh, again, thoroughly loved my time at Lipscomb, but through the years at Lipscomb, I was being approached by some headhunters about taking other jobs, bigger universities uh, that might have led to the possibility of, you know, being the president of state research university um, not that that felt was necessarily what I wanted to do but it was intriguing to think about having that level of influence on more thousands of people um, I had been approached about becoming the president of UT Chattanooga which at the time had about 18,000 students and actually is an excellent school um, even back then I'm sure it still is today uh, I, I allowed myself to be in that that search process to investigate it more, and then it became it became apparent I was going to be offered that job. Well, I'll never forget it was Good Friday of 2005. Nothing had been decided or official yet, but I was sitting in my office, and because it was Good Friday, my, my assistant wasn't even there. 
And there was a knock at the door, my office door, and I look up, and it's Andy Adams. And Andy was on my board at Lipscomb at the time. Um, and Andy's father, Andy was CEO of National Healthcare Corporation. His father founded this company in 1971. And he looked at me and he said, well, hey, I hear you might be leaving Lipscomb. Well, that's an awkward question because Andy was probably my largest donor at the time. <laughs> and your and, boss, kind of. Yeah, I am my boss. And I said, well, I, I don't know, Andy. There's nothing been decided. I'm thinking about it. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not asking you why you might consider that. But he said, I, I would never try to lure you away from Lipscomb. But if you think you might leave anyway, uh, I'd like to talk to you about coming to NHC and us grooming you to be in a leadership role there. And my head jerked back. And I said, well, I don't know anything about what you do. Uh, and he goes, well, we, we'll, we'll teach you, we'll train you. And I, I said, well, you know, you ought to get somebody in your industry. So, well, we've thought about that. We think maybe we ought to get somebody outside our industry. So that led, I went home and told Patsy, I said, you won't believe the conversation I had today. And she said, well, you're not going to seriously consider that, are you? And I said, well, before you dismiss it, I said, I can tell you that that's one of the top five senior care companies in America. I, I knew NHC well enough from where I'd sat, and I'd done some leadership training for their administrators when they would come in. So I knew the culture, I knew the story, uh, and, and I knew the success of this company. So what seemed improbable after a good bit of reflection and prayer, um, you know, three months later, I decided to take this job. So, and candidly, I, you know, I've never looked back. Um, like I said, I've loved every job I've ever had, including this one. This is uh, these are challenging times, especially when you've come through a pandemic uh, in healthcare, in particular. But, but it's it's so rewarding. I, Ira North, I go back to him, Madison. He said the measure of a society of the greatness is how how they treat the very young and the very old. And I've I've been on the side for the first half of my life working with the, the young, and now I'm on the side. And it's probably appropriate because I'm I'm now on that side myself <laughs> where I'm working with the old. And I, I love to visit uh, our, our different centers, our communities where assisted living or skilled nursing and speak to residents there. And of course, our staff and encourage them. And um, I, I, to me, I said this to anybody who listens, I said, I don't care where I've been or what my title was, I view every job as ministry. In fact, not just every job, but life is ministry. I mean, it's, it should be. You're, you're ministering the love of Jesus Christ to people around you and that's what I do here and I so I, I love it just like I've loved every job I've ever had and and by the way work with some wonderful people I you know coming into the quote corporate world I'd always been in a faith-based nonprofit world and people warned me said oh it's dog eat dog out there you're, you can find out I, I I will tell you I the quality of the character of the people that I work with of course I work around a, a huge preponderance of Christian people, just wonderfully Christian people. And it's, uh, you know, I, I didn't leave an environment uh, or I didn't enter an environment that was really unlike anything I'd experienced before. Um, like you've mentioned throughout uh, each step of the way in your career, uh, God led you here at the right time and in the right place to serve these people. And um, that's, that's great to have seen and heard about your journey here at NHC. The name of our podcast is It Takes a Village, and when we talk about that, it's just uh, people who we live in community with. 
And what we like to ask our guests are some of the people who have been part of their village throughout time. But in particular, what I want to ask you is when you hear the word mentors, um, who comes to mind and what does that word mean? Oh, that means, you know, somebody who cares about you and who will take the time to help guide you and and shape your life, not just your career direction, but you know, shape you as a human being to be better. And I look back, I've had some incredible mentors. Back in high school, uh, a fellow by the name of Mel Brown was a mentor of mine. Uh, Mel passed away a couple of years ago. Legendary baseball coach and coached baseball at Lipscomb University. Um, but Mel, when I was literally in junior high uh, and in high school, he was a mentor of mine. I got to Lipscomb, Carl McKelvey became a mentor of mine. and. I still in many ways consider Carl a mentor of mine, one of the men that I most respect and and uh, just cherish, Carl McKelvey. Uh, Willard Collins was as well. Some of the best pieces of advice uh, uh, that ever came came from Brother Collins. I'll never forget when I was 24 years old and in a new position as vice president of business affairs, I was frustrated, something going on, and I came into Brother Collins' office with my resignation letter. I was going to resign and go back to the faculty. And, you know, it, I'd been going through some really hard things in life. Uh, I had a torn Achilles tendon, and my father had had heart surgery, work was up. He said, let's just hold this letter for three days, and let's talk again. And I'll never forget, he told me, he said, don't ever make a major decision on the heels of emotion. Mm. And that, that's good advice for anybody. And, you know, he just tore that letter up and moved on. and You, you know, stayed. Stayed, and, and, you know, the rest is, as they say, history. So those three are certainly uh, mentors of mine, and uh, I guess they're the ones that, that stand out the most to me. Well, uh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. Thank you for what you did for Healing Hands way back then, um, even though you didn't know you were doing it, and uh, the impact that that has had and will continue to have the ripple effects for, for generations to come. I have this vision of what heaven's going to look like, and I have no clue whether it'll be this way or not. But as I think about you and, uh, you know, whenever that day comes many years from now, uh, I have this vision of, like, because of the lies that you've impacted, um, some of who you know and some of who you don't, like just this endless line that goes on for miles of people who can then walk up to you and say thanks. And, uh, and I mean that. And uh, I know your humility, that's, that's hard to hear and um, maybe something that uh, you haven't thought about. But really, like, I can just, with what you've done in ministry, which, like you say, every job's been ministering. But the lives that you've impacted through your leadership and through your service that, man, I can just see one day when, when heaven comes. And it's going to be a long line of people who are uh, going to line up one day and say thanks. Well. And, uh, you're very kind. I, I don't know why. I'm not sure that'll happen, but, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I really do believe that happiness comes through serving. Mm. I believe that's, uh, uh, it comes through serving. So, you know, I'm a happy person and, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had. Well, thank you. We appreciate you and Patsy and all your support and what you've done over the years. And, um, we, uh, pray blessings over, um, your journey and, and where you are here at NHC. Thank you. Appreciate it. For as long as I've known Steve Flatt, a word that has always come to mind is humility. 
He has had some very influential jobs throughout his career, and still today he deflects attention, doesn't want credit for anything that's happened on his watch, and he just continues to give God all the glory wherever he's been and whatever he's done. So we appreciate him taking time out of his very full schedule to sit down and share insight about his story. And we hope that you not only enjoyed listening, but we hope that you maybe learned something new about his journey or were reminded of the impact and influence that he's had on so many. So Steve Flatt, if you're listening, we say thank you. Just in closing, we want to say thanks for tuning in. And if you haven't already, uh, we encourage you and appreciate if you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on and share with a friend. Uh, You can text it, email it, just tell a friend or neighbor, family member about it. If you want to learn more about Healing Hands, you can go to our website, hhi.org, or you can follow us on any of our social media outlets. And our episode ending shout out goes to Chris Jingles who, as you heard Steve Flatt say, was part of this work way back when, before we ever officially became a nonprofit entity. Chris Jingles has worn various hats for us over the past three decades, and even though he is officially retired, he volunteers for us as our CFO. He sits on our leadership team and just has great institutional knowledge of Healing Hands International. He handles all of our accounting, financials, audits, makes our international wire transfers to host partners, and most importantly to us on staff, he makes sure that our paychecks get where they need to go every two weeks. So Chris Jingles, thank you, sir, for all that you do for us. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Na, 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 na.